0: God will do uh, in us to make us the kind of church that we hope to be. And each we're going to take a few times in one of the streams that we the YouTube video and also it should be in the weekly um, as well. So follow along with us as we go. And so as we will do each week, we're going to invite you to read aloud this dream together. And so let's read this aloud, shall we? The kitchen there was always entirely way too much food. Imagine every family had to go home with a full bag of leftovers kind of a thing. It's kind of the Korean way to do things. Um, and so every single time we gather together, um, I have four aunts and one uncle and so including my dad six, right? And so at least every single time there's about four to five of those families gathered together. And so regardless of how big the dining table was wherever we we're gathered, not everybody would fit. So what they would do uh, is they would set a separate kids' table off in the living room somewhere, and the kids' table always was one of these things. Yeah, yeah. Anyone feel? Now, um, even when I was young, and this is embarrassing, but it's true. Even when I was young, because of the way that I'm built, I'm actually uh, though I'm tall, I have really short legs, and I have these really big calves, and so I've never actually been able to sit crisscross very well or at all. And so, of course, in, in the Korean style, if you sit at the table and you sit kind of like with one leg out like this that's very rude and you get in trouble so I I, I still can't do it to this day and so I hated these tables because that's where I would have to sit because that's where the kids sat and I'd be uncomfortable and one leg would completely fall out of the seat or this shooting pain would go up my hip and it was just really really unfortunate. To add on top of this misery unfortunately the way that we set it up was that basically all the food was in a buffet line style and so you go to the buffet line and you get all your food and and you go through but the way our family worked there was always A couple of things on the adult table that was different from the buffet line. And the reason why is because the adults assumed that the kids would not want to eat weird things, but I, being a weird person, loved the things that they ate. I ate things like sea squirt and random fish roe and things of that nature. If you had kimchi, uh, you know, the uh, thing, and had oysters in it, they would save that for the adult table, but that's the version that I liked. But I would never be able to go because it's rude to go to the adult table. They would never let you sit there. And so I was always longing to be able to eat what the adults ate. So every time we gathered together as a family, though it was a wonderful time, the part that I enjoyed the most, which is the eating, obviously, I always felt that I was getting the short end of the stick. And so I didn't quite enjoy that very much. And so I tell you this story because, one, now you know I can't sit and If you ever ask me to, I won't do it because uh, I can't. But more so than that, because this is kind of our lives in some ways, growing up in the Asian American church, for those who did. That there is, in many ways, kind of this generational distinction between the way that we do things. right? It's the adults and the kids in many ways. We have this thing that we do. And in many ways, this distinction or this separation is something that you can see in all facets of life. Anywhere and everywhere you look in society, you see this everywhere. And in some ways, because of the way that technology is developing these days, it's only getting worse or more prevalent than ever before. And so while we can talk about the impact, the far-reaching impact of this in all different areas, we want to focus on its impact in, uh, on Christians and the church more specifically. And more specifically, even that, a church like ours. How has this impacted our faith and who we are as people, as church, as Christians, uh, in the community of God? Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that generational distinction is totally bad for the church, nor is this a like, critique of, of, of the church or our church or any church for that matter. What I want to point out today in this dream is that although clearly there are benefits to having generational distinctions, we'll talk about that in a second, That what may be best for the church, and in particular our church, is that we would be multi or intergenerational in who we are. And the hope is that we discover why this is the case based on scripture and a bit of the history. Okay, So let's get to that history real quick. I think for most of us growing up in a church like ours, this generational distinction, right, is totally normal. In some ways, we don't know anything different. It's what has always been, and it's just the way it is, right? We kind of assume that. But interestingly, in the church's history, it just hasn't actually been this way. In the Old Testament, whenever a prophet would speak to God's people and the people, would go- uh, people of God would gather together, it included everybody, young, old, men, women, everyone. And the prophet would speak, and everybody would be there to hear, if you read through the Old Testament, there are many scriptures, like the one you'll see on the uh, screen, imploring the people of God to teach the next generations, right? That is imperative that we would teach the next generation, pass on the knowledge and the understanding of who God is. And so the gathering of the people of God in the Old Testament, of Israel were almost always multi-generational or intergenerational. In the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts of so the early church, When the early church would gather together, as we'll see a bit in the book of Ephesians through our text, it was always the entire household that would gather and be present. And there are examples like this one in uh, Acts 16, where an entire household, not only they're present, they get baptized all at the same time, young, old servants, the whole bit, So the point is, though it is quite normal now for us to have these very separate, right, preschool ministry, children's, youth, college, even young adults, and then adults ministry, where we do most things, including worship separately, this has not been the norm in the history of the church. In fact, in many ways, it's largely a very recent trend, maybe even as recent as five to ten years ago. And it's something that's impacting not just immigrant churches, but churches as a whole. And this is evident because most of the books and the articles and the blogs that are written about this have been written in the past 5, 10 or years or so. So that's the history. Then we've got to ask, well, then how do we get here? Well, many people who do studies on this thing believe and think that it's largely because of how our educational systems, our schools, have developed. With the aid of developmental psychology, which is really helpful, educational systems schools have advocated that we should specialize more and more for each age group to teach them and to help them and to cater things so that they can indeed learn best, that certain age groups develop differently and learn differently, so on and so forth. Again, all really good things. And so the church, in an effort to actually help groups thrive, we've taken this approach and then we started to make things distinguish and saying we should do you know, young people this way or preschool even, children, so on and so forth. And so we've distinguished it this way to help the people. And of course, being Korean for most of us, or this being a Korean American church, we take things like this to a whole new level, right? We love our academies, our hagwons, right, where you can go and get specialized help for every subject known to man, and you have a tutor for every one of these things, and so that's how we kind of tend to take it to maybe a perhaps different level. And so in many ways, in the church today, in many Asian American or Korean American churches specifically, doing multi-generational, intergenerational kind of like this is odd or feels like maybe taking a backwards step to some. And I think we can understand why that might be the case. We've had cases where people would come and visit our church and see this type of worship and say, oh, young people, old people, everyone in between, and say, now that's not my bag, and then they would kind of leave and, you know, and go to another church, and that's fine because that's not for them. And so we understand the struggle. We understand kind of these things. And we've also long said in here that the toughest transition for all of our sixth graders and seventh graders, but mostly our sixth graders, is more so than the worship music that changes, right? They go from like upbeat songs with motions. I don't know if you like that or not, but if you basically go for that to this, which some describe as, I don't know, one time we, we we were described as emo. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but that's what it was. But even more than that, someone said it's a bad thing. Thank you. Um, so more than that, though, right? even more than the worship, they go from 10 to 15-minute sermons from a nice guy like John Suh to, to this. So every time someone asks me, hey, what is your church like? And I tell them, oh, we do this, and so on and so forth. Someone generally goes, oh, Pastor Pete, that must really be difficult to prepare sermons to speak to such a large range of ages. And then someone always comments, I think more appropriately, and goes, I mean, Pastor Pete, I know that must be difficult, but poor kids. They got to listen to you every single Sunday. And so we understand the struggle, right? We understand the difficulties and in many ways our struggles and the things, if you've been here a while, we understand them and we're working through them little by little. So then the question then maybe that we have to ask as we get in is, then why are we multi-generational? Why do we do this? Why is it important? Why is this one of our dreams? Maybe we ask even then, is it even the best way to do things? Now, in terms of the answer to this, the why, I think there's two categories of why. One is the practical, and the other is the theological or the biblical, if you will. And though there are many practical reasons, we will not go into them very much in depth because, one, the blogs and the articles and the books do a way better job than I can, particularly even in one sermon. But secondly, and most importantly... The reason why we are a multi-generation church, we dream of being one, not just here at RK, but also at our entire church, KCPC, isn't because it's more practical, isn't because it's more efficient, isn't because the, con- or the pros outweigh the cons. It's not even because we're trying to be different where we are zigging, where others are zagging. That's not the point. The reason why I think we are this way is because if we study scripture and understand our history, it seems that this is the most appropriate way for us to be a church to be the church that God desires us to be. In fact, if you study scripture a bit, um, or I think what I find at least is much of how God designed things to be is countercultural to the way that the world says it should be. And in particular, the way that God designs things to be is often not very practical or efficient. That though for us as human beings, we tend to focus on how to make things more efficient and proficient, it doesn't seem that that's often God's interest. That as we look at the gospel in our history, that though this may not be the most efficient way to do churches, it may not be the most proficient way to teach all of our people and relate to them all at the same time, that this is indeed the way he desires for us to be a church, perhaps. And that's what we want to discover here today. But first, let's do the practical uh, reasons, because uh, I think they are important. We're just going to highlight a few. These aren't all of them, just a the few that I thought were most important. So here they are. First, I think when you read the Gospels, a Gospel thing always is that a part of the Gospel is that we as Christians should not only engage, but do life intimately with people who are different from us. That's a Gospel thing. That the Gospel makes people who are enemies and strangers and turns them into family. Earlier in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, we see the barriers and the walls breaking down. We'll see see more of this next week. And so although I'm not suggesting that in generational differences that we are enemies, I hope not, but that indeed, oftentimes, we can feel quite like strangers in here, and so uniting us into a family is indeed the gospel. Second practical reason, doing life generationally, in doing so, we learn wisdom from one another that I think, in often ways, we cannot or we will. but there is indeed a lot to learn from the older folks in here. But I'll also say to the older folks, as we get older, our hope isn't that you become more seasoned with life and life experience, but that you are becoming more seasoned with Christ experience or Christ-likeness as you get older. Right? This idea of mentorship, and we talk about this a lot here, that we would have the older right, impacting the younger. And what we're talking about isn't just kind of being able to pass on our knowledge. One of the interesting things about our church, I don't know if you know this, but um, literally out of all of our adults, we're like 150 adults or so, this is college and up, about a quarter of them literally are in the medical field. Doctors, nurses, medical students. Like it's, it's kind of crazy. Someone suggested we should open up our own clinic for free, which is crazy, but that's how many doctors we have. And so on one hand, it'd be great. And it should be that those doctors and people who are seasoned in that way would pass on their knowledge to our younger people who maybe want to go down that route. But more importantly than that, Passing on generationally is passing on Christ generationally and not just our expertise in the world. That we would indeed pass on our Christ like maturity to others, and particularly the younger one. But older folks, it's not just a one way older are better and older are right to the younger folks. That's not the gospel. That indeed, there are many things that we as older folks, and I'm including myself there, can learn from the younger phones. And I'm not just talking about how to use our iPhones better and not look like a noob using social media. By the way, parents, no one uses Facebook anymore. It's Instagram and TikTok. I know that may be sad to you, but that's the reality apparently is what I'm told. But more importantly than that, the example that I can point to is, if as an older person, if you ever get a chance to get to know a younger folk, younger person who loves Jesus and is passionate about Jesus... One of the things that stands, about, stands out about those folks is just how much they're in awe and in wonder of who God is. It's humbling, actually, to be around them. Scripture calls it childlike faith, that we're like children, we love and we trust, and we have this wonder about who God is and how amazing He is. And as we get older and more educated in some, in some ways, we seem to lose this idea. We see it in our children. I think I'm still cool to my kids. Don't ask Mason and don't believe what he says. Just kidding. You can ask him. But as they get older, it feels like sometimes they, we become less cool to them as parents. But that's kind of the idea. As we get older, we lose this awe of who God is. Certain theologians think that the one thing the modern church is missing, perhaps, is that we have lost our sense of awe that God is God and that we should wonder and be amazed at who He is. And so we learn things from one another. And then, third, practically, that as we do life generationally and love, therefore, generationally, it causes us to love more maturely. The more I have in common with someone, it's easier to love them. I think that's true. Right? Would you agree? But loving someone very different from me, someone that I do not quite understand, and let's be honest, we don't understand each other very well in this room, a younger to older generation sometimes, but that loving someone like that requires our effort. It requires more, maybe, our attention, and then perhaps even most, it requires our humility, a willingness to sacrifice and learn, a willingness to push through our differences and the discomfort those differences create, because in following Jesus' example, he loves us through very big differences, mainly his holiness and our sinfulness, and then he loves through the discomfort of the cross and the death. And so we should love more maturely, because indeed, it causes us to as we love generationally. So just some practical reasons that I think we should keep in mind. But now, and more importantly, then, the reason, or the theological reason as to why we dream of being a multi- or intergenerational church. We're going to read Ephesians 6, 1 through four together, very short. This is a part of a longer thing, and we'll talk about that a little bit, but it's from 5, chapter 5, 15 through 6, uh, 9, but we're going to read this section because it's most appropriate for us, so if you would, it's on the screen, Uh, read along with me. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, let me give you a little context of what's happening here, okay? The book of Ephesians is actually a letter that the Apostle Paul writes to the church in the city of Ephesus while he's in prison. And so he sends the letter off with a messenger and then the letter arrives and the whole church gathers in one place and then he designate one person to stand up and then read the letter aloud to the people. So it's very oral uh, learning or auditory learning, excuse me right? And so the whole church is gathered, and as we mentioned earlier, this entire whole church is the entire household. Men, women, children, and servants are all gathered together, and you must know that at this time in history, in this part of the world, this is a big deal. At this time in history, wives, children, and servants were seen as human beings with little to zero rights, that they saw the only real human beings as men, and only men wealthy enough to own servants or slaves. And so not only are these people there, which is a big enough deal, here is then Paul, as we read, writing specifically to the wives, children, and the servants. And notice, he addresses wives, children, and servants before he addresses the men or the masters. And so right off the bat, we know that something important is going on here. Now, the entire letter of Ephesians is set up like this. There's two halves, chapters 1 through 3, and then 4 through 6. That's not 6, but you get a point. On the first half of the book, Paul is basically saying, look, Now that we know what Jesus has done, right, in the gospel, his life, death, and resurrection, we now live in a brand new reality. Things are different, never to be the same again. Probably a bad example, but life will never be the same after COVID. Kind of like that, right? This thing has happened, and now life is totally different, never to be the same again. So because of what Jesus has done, life is totally different. Then in the second half, he says, here are how the things are different. Or maybe more importantly, here's how we should live because things are different. So if you read chapters 4, 5, and 6, you all of a sudden see a lot more Therefore, He's saying, now that things are different, therefore, here's how you should live different. And one of those major things that are completely different than before because of Jesus is how every relationship works. Now in those days, there was a thing called household codes. It's rules for how relationships function, kind of like a rule book for how relationships are. And these relationships, right, were all contained in the same place within these three relationships. Husband and wife, father and children, and master and slave. And the reason why this was the case, because in those days, the home was the center of life in every way. Because the home, for most people, was also the workplace, not just the place that you lived and ate at. And so all the relationships were kind of focused on these three. And in most cases, as you can probably tell by now, the husband, the father, and the master was the same person. In my household, it would be me. And so one person has all the, all the power, and everyone else has no power, and that's how the dynamics worked. And it wasn't very pleasant for the people who didn't have, have any power. And so when Paul writes this letter, interestingly, he's actually not, in some ways, he's not even speaking to wives, children, and servants more so than he's talking to the men, and the men are shocked, I think, because of what Paul is saying. And to make the situation even worse, in those days, this is not true, but... People understood, right, the women and the children and the servants to have not only no rights, but they were understood to be objects for the men, the husbands, the fathers and the masters to use however they wanted. And there are many examples of this, but most of them are very disturbing and very sad, so I won't share them with you. But here are a couple of just more kind of calm, innocent examples. One was this. This is not true, by the way, and I apologize to the, uh, apologies to the women, but they believed back in those days, many people did, that women were biologically inferior mentally to men that they just didn't have the same capability intellectually as men did. Men believed that women literally could only have children and raise them, and that was what they're capable of. Clearly not true. But that's how they believed. It was so bad that Jewish men would wake up every day, many of them, and pray and say, God, I thank you that you didn't make me, you didn't make me born a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. So in every way, long story short... This was the way things were. These codes and rules were ironclad, set in stone. And yet here's Paul in the section from chapter 5, verse 15 through 6 through 9, suggesting that that is completely not the way it is and something should be completely different. And the reason why he says is in verse 1, he says, Because of this new reality, therefore, be imitators of God and walk like him and love like him, just as he loved you. He says, live your life like Jesus did, loving like he did to the people that he loved. And then in verse 15, he says, here's how you do so. In a set of three don'ts and do's. He says, do this, here's how you do it. Don't walk as unwise, but as wise. Don't be foolish, but understand God's will. And the most important, he says, if you're going to live like Jesus, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And then he describes consequences As to what happens when you're filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making melody, always giving thanks. And then lastly, most importantly, being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Important note, real quick, some Bible translations that you may read will translate this section incorrectly and make those words speak, make, and and give thanks as commands they're not. They're participles, which is a fancy way of saying if you are filled with the Spirit, these things just happen naturally. Probably a bad joke, but if you eat something really spicy for some of you, there are natural things that happen in your system that aren't very good. Kind of that idea. You can't do anything about it. It is just what happens. That's what he's describing in a much better way. So if you put it all together then, what Jesus is doing, is, or what Paul is doing is this. Because of what Jesus did in the gospel, our reality is that we should live as Jesus did, loving others as he is loved and loving the people that he loved. So again, think back to Hosea 3 from last week. And if we're going to be this and do this, then the thing you have to be is to be filled with the Spirit because when you are filled with the Spirit, then we will naturally sing amongst other things, but most importantly, be subject to the way one another the way that we are to Jesus. And the we is husbands to wives as wives to husbands, fathers to children or parents to children as children to parents, and then master to servants as servants are to masters. I hope you're hearing how revolutionary, ridiculous this would have been to the people of those days. He's quite literally flipping all the relationships upside down, or as my professor taught me, right side up, because this is the way God intended it to be. Now the word be subject in the Greek is a Greek word upo tasso." It is a compound word, upo tasso." Upo is the preposition to under, and then "tasso" is the verb to stand. Stand under, quite literally. Paul's working with the text from Mark chapter 10. You may be familiar. It's when James and John go to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, we want to be the best disciples, essentially. And then Jesus teaches disciples and he teaches them like this. He goes, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And the great men exercise authority over them. But this is not the way among you. Because whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first shall be slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The contrast is pretty stark. The world and the way the relationship in the world works is over. In the gospel, it's under. Greatness in the world is over. Greatness in the gospel is under. Maybe a bad example in highlighting the generational difficulties in here. Um, In the world of gaming, I'm not a gamer, but I've been told that the way you win is to be OP, overpowered, that you overpower your enemies to defeat them. But in the gospel, you don't defeat them by overpower, you defeat them by standing under. Suggest that to a gamer and they just laugh at you because that doesn't work that way. And notice, Jesus doesn't say that being great is bad. No, being great is good. We should do well. It's just that Jesus' definition of greatness is completely opposite, it seems, to the world's definition of greatness. So in a world where men stood over their wives and their children and servants, treating them as nothing, as objects, that they could do whatever they want to do with, Paul has the, just the audacity and the gall to suggest that because of what Jesus did, everyone, including the most powerful people in the world, the men, should stand under one another. And again, imagine the shock in people's faces. And then Paul then describes the nuances of all three relationships, right? Wives, husbands, parents, children, masters, slaves, and we'll focus on the parent to children part for our sake today. Now in speaking to the children, Paul is working with the fifth commandment, right? Honor your parents. Don't raise your hands. I kind of want to know, but don't raise your hands. Has any, any parent in here be like, you know what the Bible says, honor your father and mother. Don't, again, don't raise your hands. I, my parents said that to me, so just just knowing. Now, this word or this commandment, right? The idea hinges on this one word, honor. Honor your father and mother. Now, this is a whole sermon on its own, and we went through the Ten Commandments uh, a little while ago, so you can go check that sermon out for a more detailed look. But here, we'll just give you kind of the brief summary. The way that children are to be subject to your parents is to honor them. The word honor in Hebrew literally means heavy or weighty. The verb form of the noun honor is the word in Hebrew for glory. So, someone's glory or God's glory is their weightiness or their heaviness. So, children in here, and all of us are children, most of us, we still have parents. The way that we honor our parents is to give weight to them, to feel the weight of their position. And you ask, what is that weight? Well, it's actually quite simple. When every parent in the world welcomes their child into the world and holds that little baby, they immediately, literally and figuratively, are carrying a great weight. The great weight of carrying and protecting and guiding the most vulnerable people in our world, the little ones. They have to quite literally, not exaggerating, keep them alive by feeding them, changing their diaper, holding them to sleep, and pushing them around in the strollers that we all love so much, basically doing everything for them. But there's more to that weight that they carry. Parents carry the weight of having to impart values and a worldview onto their children, that which is right and wrong and important and how to see the world and to be in the world. But the greatest weight that parents carry is the weight of painting for their children the initial picture and idea of who God is. Helping them to initially see who God is until they're ready to see and understand it for themselves. And we must note that every parent, when they welcome their first child, is a complete noob. They have no idea what they're doing. This is a tremendous weight that parents carry. And honoring them, for the children in here, is to recognize and feel and appreciate that weight they've carried for us by respecting them, listening to them, obeying them, and caring for them. Specifically in caring for them, this means that as they get older, we care for them when they can't... also suggests that as children get older they begin to their parents' opinion input along with God's input. They literally quite put it on a scale like this. And whichever wins, wins. And God's input Now if are children in here you're going, oh no, my parents are gonna make oh, hold on. Parents, remember, this and honoring goes two ways and here's what Paul tells us to the parents be subject to the children now again we have to mention this is completely unheard of at the time so many people will be like well, I don't understand and maybe this is kind of how you feel apologies if this is kind of maybe you feel like this is the way it we'll would be at home that if, if you suggest it to your parents that they should be subject to you they'd be like what are you talking about but here's what Paul is calling fathers and parents to do Paul is also calling parents to recognize the weightiness of their children he says, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Now, I think we can see clearly that this doesn't mean do whatever it takes to make your children happy all the time and never angry, because that one doesn't work, because it can't do it, but more so, discipline and instruction, well, those aren't always very happy things, are they? So what Paul is saying is this. First, fathers, you no longer have the right, and so parents, you no longer have the right to do whatever you want with their kids. They're not your objects to be owned that you can do whatever you want with. But more so, and this probably applies to us more, fathers and parents, you cannot and should not expect your children to do whatever you want and become whatever it is that you want them to be or think is best because that is not honoring to them because remember, it's honoring them by the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Now, the verse that I think that encapsulates this best is Proverbs 22.6. I don't have it on the screen, but I think many of you know this verse. Train up a child in the way that he or she should go, so that even when he or she is old, he or she will not depart from it. The literal translation in Hebrew seems to read more like this. Train up a child in the way of his, so that even when he or she is old, he or she will not depart from it. It's clearly, don't train your kids to be whatever you think is best, parents. No, it's trained them quite literally according to his or her bent. The way that they were created to bend. The best example I can think of is... Does anyone love asparagus in here? We use asparagus a lot because my second son loves it. But if you know asparagus, the top of it is very thin and the bottom is very thick. So if you cook it all at the same time... I know foodie stuff, don't mind me. It don't cook evenly. So once you get the bottom to be cooked all the way through, the top is mushy. So what you're supposed to do is actually cut the bottoms off. But interestingly, asparagus, I don't know if you know this, If you bend them and put a little bit of pressure, they snap automatically in the place that's supposed to snap. And every asparagus stalk, is that what they're called? It's different. So you just gently apply pressure, and where they're supposed to uh, snap is where it's most ripe. It's quite interesting. That's kind of the idea. Train your kids and find out where they bend and where they're supposed to bend and how is that they're supposed to bend. Train them up consistent with who they are, the way God the Creator has made them to be and when you help them discover that, they will never, ever depart from that. Parents, being subject to our children, recognizing their weightiness, is to recognize that they, every single one of our children, have God, the Creator's design in them, His image in them. And what we should do to honor them and to feel their weight and to be subject to them is to, one, lay down our dreams for them, but mostly dig deep to help them discover what that design is. Asking God to help us to know what God's dream for them is and how he has made them. And then lastly, most importantly, helping them to realize that dream. And of course we do this not only by knowing them, but more importantly, studying them. Discovering their God-given nuances, his blueprint perhaps, for how he has formed their inmost being. I love how Paul puts it, the discipline, the instruction of the Lord. To me, it's like saying, discover God's instruction manual for your child. When you buy a complicated machine or anything, it comes with an instruction manual, right? Do you know who writes that instruction manual? The person who made the machine. And your job, because you didn't make the machine, is to read the instruction manual so you can figure out how to best use the machine. So when you receive a child, we must figure out God's instructions for this child because he's made them a specific way. And when we discover that and help them discover that, they will never depart from it because it's God's design, deeply rooted in their inmost being. I have three children, and all three of them are so different. It's quite hilarious. So our job as parents is to discover how different they are. And once we do, then they will never depart from those things. So now then, with the time we have left, let's wrap up all of this information we've just learned and figure out then why or how this leads us to dream of a multi-generational church. Now, if you read the section from chapter 5, verse 15 through 6, 9, I encourage you to do so. There should be something that jumps out at you when you read it. A good Bible reader, we've long said in here, is one, when you read Scripture and you read sections of it, you should pay attention to certain things. And one of the things you should pay attention to is repetition. Ideas or words that are repeated all the time. And in this section, interestingly, you hear or you will read Paul say over and over and over again, a idea, two, in, of or like the Lord. Here's the entire list. So in the, in, the, in the yellow you see highlighted, right? We're being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives to husbands, as to the Lord, as to Christ, love the church, in the Lord, of the Lord, as to Christ, as slaves of Christ, as to the Lord. Over and over and over again, you hear this idea that all the things that we do, we do it because of Jesus, as we would do to Jesus, as he's done to us. It's all centered around Jesus. Paul is stating, I think, a very simple but important idea at the heart of the gospel that we would dream but more so shout out perhaps that the gospel of Jesus is a gospel because of what Jesus has done that brings the separate things and unites them together. That what was once divided is now one. Or perhaps that the gospel defines people by the one thing that they have in common, even if it's just one, over the thousands of things that we don't have in common. And then in bringing them together, that's you, not only do I feel for you, I'm I I I'm having difficulty. I'm having difficulty. ever become a reality for us. And again, I hear you. Because in the history of the church, I think what's happened is, though we were supposed to highlight our distinct, our age-specific, generational, cultural, language-specific qualities, to this distinctive became division. And these divisions, they range all over the spectrum. But all of them have brought pain. They can range from things that should be very innocent and therefore not very painful, but it is, and then to things that are just quite unfortunate. Like, the innocent stuff is kind of, you know, I've heard this a lot of times, and it happened to our church and many other churches, that when high schoolers, they finish youth group, they're supposed to go to the English ministry, right? But because those two groups have never gotten ever together, then as they go, though they grew up here at this church and they've been here since they were like, yay big, they get to the English ministry, and then all of a sudden people greet them and say, Hi, welcome, who are you? Welcome to our church. What well, I live here, bro. Like, what do you mean? So that's a small thing, but it's a reality, and it, and it hurts. And then there's other things, right? Things like joint worship that we try to do, and, and, and our worship styles and things don't ever line up with, so we feel the pain, the difficulty of all of this, and we feel like maybe this is not for me and, and all these types of things. But those are kind of somewhat innocent things that can be difficult. came to one that i've always kind of run into in the generation divide of the in you know, the korean-american churches sometimes our parents based on their culture and their language or whatever seem to have a different understanding of how the gospel works versus sometimes kind of unique. as i knew so much and they talked to me, i believe you and i'm i'm confused but i know that if i went home and said this to my christian mom or dad they would not like it which again causes such different issues right and so that which is supposed to be unique and celebrated has made us different And by different, I mean superior and inferior a lot of times. And of course, superior always wins over the inferior rather than under. But I think what we're getting at, what Paul is getting at here in this dream, is that the beauty of the gospel unites division and brings them together and makes them one. That though we are very different, let's not forget, we are very different. Just look at the way people dress, right? Very different. And we're always constantly changing, faster than we've ever changed in the history of the world, it seems. But even though we are different, what unites us is so much more than that which differentiates us. That we're not standing under each other because it's good. No, we're standing under because Jesus stood under us. That we're doing to one another what Jesus has done for us that he died for all, cleanses us all, no matter who they are, no matter who we are, and therefore we would do for the other. And the idea as a beginning, we're just beginning with this dream, is what better place to start than perhaps worship? Because here's the truth of worship. No matter who you are in here, how old you are in here, this word is for all of you. It's the word of God. And in worship, no matter who you are, this is a place where the same God sacrificed his own son for every single one of us. The same God promises eternal life for every single one of us. This is all of us, sinners, gathered together, worshiping the perfect God. In worship, we all sing and we all respond. We all cry out. We all pain and we all hear and receive God's love. Where every voice becomes the one voice of the church and the body crying out. Sinners worshiping the same one holy God. And if we allow that gospel to work in us, continually allowing us to be subject to one another by standing under the other as Jesus has done to us, then that we would then truly become one. And the most striking reversal of this text that we didn't cover is what God calls masters and servants to do. It's the most craziest one. Because again, think, masters and servants were slaves, right? I actually like think like slavery in America, but just in a different context. And what he tells them to do, and you can go home and read verses five through nine of chapter six, is he actually spends a lot of time talking to the servants. And interestingly, what he tells them is this. He goes, servants, obey or serve your masters as you would serve Jesus. But not like men or not to please men or anything, but serve Jesus. He's basically telling them, these masters, they ain't your masters, but serve them as you would serve Jesus. And then at the end, to flip the whole thing upside down, he goes, and masters? Realize that these servants, they're not your servants because you are not their master. Why? Because there's only one master and we are all servants of that same master and it's Jesus. That's why we stand under. Because Jesus did it for us. And so as you think about the church and what we're supposed to be, and how we're supposed to love one another, and how then we might be a church and a light and a salt to the world, perhaps maybe the dream is this dream because we as a Korean American church, largely, we as an immigrant church, that perhaps the way we speak to the world the best about the impact of the gospel in our own midst is our willingness to stand under the other, even though we are very different, even though it's not easy, even though It doesn't seem logical sometimes that that's how we do so. So church, would you dream this dream? Let it start here at RK on this side. some levels, it's going to seem that to make this work, we're the ones who are always going to be standing other when people aren't standing under us. But I pray that you wouldn't stand under others because they and who they are and what they are and what they do, so that you would see Jesus, his blood upon them, his identity, and his righteousness upon them and that you would stand under them because they, because Jesus loves them Jesus is in them, and we stand under him as he stood under us. So may I invite you into a time of reflection and prayer. For some of us, I think we're probably going to have to work through a lot of the difficulties of our lives growing up in this context, perhaps. Also work through the fears that we may have about what it may be. Perhaps it's even just the difficulties that we experience in here in, in this intergenerational context that we have but may you, as you do so, lift all those things up to God and then pray that because He has stood under us that we would stand under one another because we see in them Jesus and His blood and His righteousness and His love. Take some time to pray and respond and then in due time our praise team will lead us in songs of worship.